Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Welcome to Administrative Law Review's A Hard Look. My name is Stephen Valentino, your host for Season 3 of A Hard Look. Before I dive into our agenda for today, I would like to foremost thank both Sarah Kanarzer and Shabir Hamid for their excellent work in developing this podcast, as well as contributing to the many important conversations happening in the world of administrative law. Most of all, I want to thank them for their mentorship and assistance in transitioning into this role. I wish them nothing but the best moving forward in their legal careers. I'm not alone in this endeavor. I'll be working closely with Cooper Babaturk, the technology editor for Administrative Law Review. We look forward to discussing important topics in administrative law as we curate this next season. Today, I am joined by Professor Kirk Nara, partner at Wilmer Hale and co-chair of both their big data practice and cybersecurity and privacy practice. In addition addition to his career as a legal practitioner, Professor Nara also serves as an adjunct professor at American University's Washington College of Law and Case Western Reserve University. Professor Nara has been recognized as a leading data privacy professional with awards from many organizations, including the Vanguard Award from the International Association of Privacy Professionals. As a disclaimer to our viewers, any views expressed by our guests are that of his own and are not a reflection of that of his firm, organizations, clients, or other parties in which his opinions could be imputed. On this episode of A Hard Look, we will be discussing the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, or more commonly known as HIPAA. Today, with the help of our guest, we will discuss the law's inception, evolution, and potential for the future. Professor Nara, welcome to A Hard Look. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for coming. So in 1996, Congress decides to pass HIPAA and confer new responsibilities to HHS. What purposes was this law trying to serve? Sure. So you you read the name, and it's important to, to focus on the name. It's Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Portability was the focus of the law. Portability meant Um, essentially taking your health insurance with you when you switched jobs. There was a concern at the time, again, this is a long time ago in our healthcare system, there was a concern that if people had any kind of pre-existing conditions, they would not be able to get health insurance if they went to a new employer. And so the law was intended uh, to address that issue. Has nothing to do with privacy at that point, has nothing to do with security, And so that's sort of how we start down this crazy path that ends up today where when people say HIPAA, as you say, commonly known as HIPAA, nobody means portability. They tend to mean privacy. They also tend to often be wrong about what HIPAA in fact stands for on privacy and security, but we can get to that over the course of our discussion today. When this law was finally passed, what challenges did HHS face as a governmental organization in trying to implement this legislation? Sure. So let's let's talk about this. I know this is an administrative law related podcast. So let's talk about where I think the, the key administrative law issue. So going back to the idea of portability. So the focus of the law was on portability. Everybody in Congress, hard to imagine today, but everybody in Congress essentially agreed that that was a problem that needed to be fixed. So one of the things that Congress often does is they start adding other stuff into bills where there's a key provision that everybody agrees on. They start adding other stuff. 
So uh, lots of people in the healthcare industry and otherwise originally knew HIPAA because of the fraud provisions, anti-fraud provisions that were in the law. I spent a lot of my early career, you know, HIPAA to me meant dealing with anti-fraud issues. Over time, it has meant privacy and security, but privacy and security comes in very much through the back door. It was part of something called administrative simplification. That was the idea, and again, 1996, very beginning of the internet era, the idea that more and more of the healthcare industry was moving to computers and online. Congress didn't really know what that meant. They thought that if the healthcare system could standardize certain activity, think a doctor sending in a claim and the health insurance company paying the claim, if you could standardize those electronic transactions, you could make things a lot more efficient, save money, and be more accurate. Great idea. You know, again, we can debate whether it worked, but great idea. But what then happens from an administrative law perspective is Congress basically said, if we're going to push all this stuff electronic, shouldn't we think about privacy and security of that data? At the same time, Congress said, we don't really know what to do about privacy and security of that data. So Congress, as a legislative matter, basically in that 1996 law, gave itself three years to pass privacy and security rules. Those of our listeners who are congressional scholars can probably guess what happened at the end of those three years, which was nothing at all. And so what happened then was Congress wrote into the law the responsibility on HHS to write privacy and security rules. But the interesting administrative law challenge is that they gave them no instructions of any kind about what those privacy and security provisions would be other than who could be covered by those rules. And the who could be covered by those rules was dictated by what entities were involved in portability and what entities were involved in submitting standard electronic transactions. So we end up with a set of privacy rules that is very, it's not narrow, but it doesn't cover all of the healthcare industry and all of your health data because there's lots of stuff that wasn't subject to companies and entities that, that did portability or standard transactions. So Congress, HHS was stuck with basically regulating hospitals, doctors, pharmacies, and health insurers. And they were given no substantive guidance on what to say about those entities and what they could do and how they could protect the data. So that was the challenge. Originally was we have an obligation as HHS to write regulations. We have a blank piece of paper other than at the top, it says who the rules apply to. That was it. That's all they had. And they had to basically invent a privacy and security system from there. So taking that sort of open mandate um, given by Congress and who, and given really the only the script of who it actually applies to, what sorts of obli- what, what did HHS ultimately write? What sorts of early obligations were these entities supposed to to adhere to? Yeah, and, and again, this became a really interesting issue. And I, you know, I, I'm I'm now the first draft of those rules came out I think in 1999, and I've been working with these rules since 1999. And so we're dealing with uh, you know a very different system today. You know, all kinds of things are different from 1999. It's often interesting to me how good a job they did, right? You know, making this up as they went along. But there were a couple, a couple of core, core ideas that I think really are, are sort of the dominant elements of, of what HIPAA was, the HIPAA privacy rule in particular. So 
the first point that they came up with, actually, let me back up even one step. So one of the things that was really important in thinking about these rules was that HHS went into the drafting thinking about two perhaps competing goals. One was protecting the privacy of patient information. The second was making sure that the healthcare system still worked well. Those rules could be intention. They didn't have to be intention, but they wanted to be careful. They wanted to do the best they could to accommodate both of those goals. And so, for example, one of the key principles of the HIPAA privacy rule, probably in my mind, the most important principle and one that really was was sort of groundbreaking in in broader privacy law was to say, all right, how we're going to define what you can do with data is to basically say, let's define in the rules what's normal in the healthcare system. And we're going to make use and disclosure of information for those normal purposes. We're going to make that automatic. Patient consent really isn't needed for that. The consent is essentially going to become automatic. If a hospital or a doctor or health insurer wants to do something that isn't normal, they have to get the patient's permission. But otherwise, we're going to define what's normal. Again, they did a pretty good job on that. We could debate around the edges. But um, all that normal stuff happens automatically. That makes the system work much better, much more efficiently, and lots of the goals of the healthcare system are able to be accomplished because they're able to use information for things like quality control and improving you know, how you conduct healthcare and making sure that there's appropriate oversight and, and things like that. So that, that use and disclosure principle was really important. Um, they also made up some other stuff that was really important. For example, they recognized very quickly in writing these rules that hospitals and doctors and health insurers used vendors. Everybody, you know, everybody has vendors. And HHS is looking at that and saying, we don't have any authority over those vendors. We're not allowed to regulate them. They weren't defined in the law to be somebody we could regulate. So they made up this idea of what's called a business associate. That's a vendor to a healthcare company. And they made up a way to protect people's privacy when data went from the hospital to the vendor. And so they basically imposed on the hospital, who they could regulate, the obligation to have a contract with the vendor, the business associate, that passed through by contract certain privacy and security obligations. So in that sense, they were able to allow hospitals and doctors to still use vendors. I mean, they could have prohibited vendors, but that would have been a bigger problem. They let them continue to use vendors, but at the same time, they found a way very creatively to protect data reasonably well, even though the Congress didn't give them any authority to do that. So that's, you know, those were the, I think that probably the two biggest, they came up with various individual rights. They came up with the idea of privacy notices that uh, consumers get, patients get when they go to the doctor's office, they go to the hospital, lots of other key pieces. But again, the, 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 the sort of governing principle was let's protect privacy pretty well, but let's make sure that we don't do that in a way that makes it uh, hard to operate the healthcare system because it's in the interest of patients to have a well-operating healthcare system. Privacy isn't the absolute only goal. We want to make sure the healthcare system is working well at the same time. And you mentioned that individuals have a piece in this to some extent. What sorts of rights or privileges are within HIPAA at this point in time to regular uh, citizens? 
regular citizens. Sure. Uh, the average patient. So, I mean, a couple things. One is that your information is protected according to these rules and you don't really have to do anything about it. So when you go to the doctor, there are certain things that the doctor is able to do with your information, but they are generally things that you would expect the doctor to be able to do. I mean, if I gave you a list and I said, here's the 15 things the doctor is able to do. Do you, do you think all 15 of those are normal? You might not agree in any random sense, but you know that the doctor is going to use your data to treat you. You know that the doctor is going to get paid and ask to submit a claim to the insurance company. You know that the doctor or more accurate, you know, more appropriately, the hospital, they have an accounting department. They have a quality department. They have to hire new doctors. They have to, you know, defend litigation. You know, they have to do stuff to run a business as well. So, you know, as a patient, if you pay attention to the notice that's handed to you, you know sort of what the doctors and hospitals can do, and it's generally normal stuff. That's a kind of right. It's not, you know, again, it's just sort of automatic. Um, you have a right to get a notice. Everybody gets a notice. Hardly anybody reads the notice. You don't have to read the notice because uh, the, the rules are automatic. You have the right to what's called access of your information. Um, you get a copy of your information if you want it. You don't have to ask for it. You don't require to get it. But um, that's become an increasingly important right over time, particularly as records become more electronic. People have lots of different healthcare providers and they're able to now, uh, doesn't always work perfectly, but in general, you have the right to make sure that your data, if you switch doctors or you need to go to a specialist or you've moved locations or whatever, you can move your data from one doctor to another. That's a really important right. It's something that's in the news today because HHS is really trying to make sure that's working well. You have the right to correct records. It's called amend records. You don't get to say, oh, please delete the fact that I had that condition or whatever. But if it really wasn't you, you get to amend it. Um, there are other, there, there are some other sort of complicated rights in particular situations. If you're in a, you know, you're in a domestic abuse situation, there are certain rights that you have to make sure that your information is held in particularly careful ways. But it's a generally pretty good system that lets people, I think, gives them rights in situations where they want to exercise it. Now, again, that puts a burden on the individual to know that they have the right and then to choose to exercise it. You know, the domestic abuse is, is, a, is a good example. There's a very particular process, but the average person doesn't know that process exists. That presumably means the average victim of domestic abuse doesn't know that that exists. That's, you know, that's a bit of a problem. I'm not sure HHS can necessarily solve that. But um, again, they've done a good, thoughtful job keeping in mind blank piece of paper. Congress said nothing whatsoever about individual rights, and HHS has done a pretty good job on it. Now that we have evaluated HIPAA in its original conception and subsequently promulgated regulations, let's transition to 2009. In 2009, Congress passed the Health Information Technology Act, or HITECH, as it's often colloquially referred to. What substantive changes manifested as a result of this legislation? Sure. So, so yeah, Congress is great at the acronym. That's probably their <laughs> single best uh, skill is coming up with good, good acronyms. And the privacy <laughs> field in particular has a lot of really good ones. The can spam law for for emails and stuff. So um, high tech was part of a much bigger law. It was part of the overall economic stimulus act that came in at the beginning of the Obama administration that included, you know, road building and stuff like that. And there was a piece that was tied to the healthcare industry. And the idea, the motivating factor was to try and um, 
motivate doctors and hospitals to implement electronic medical records with the idea that, again, the system would work better if we had these sort of electronic medical records that could be standardized, could be shared if needed, could be more accurate, et cetera. And, and the economic stimulus part was basically the government was going to pay doctors and hospitals to implement electronic health records. So Congress is going to do that. At the same time, they say, well, let's, let's see what we should do about the privacy and security rules because we're now going to encourage people to have more and more electronic records. You could debate whether it made sense to add obligations while you were at the same time trying to encourage them to implement these records, but that's a different issue. So HHS had an opportunity based on the legislation to go in and write new rules to both implement the legislation, which is a more traditional administrative law function. They also had the chance to just rewrite the rules. What they ended up doing was pretty much just implementing the legislation. So that meant the legislation said that these business associates who I mentioned earlier, the vendors, now can be subject directly to the law because they changed the statute. That the HHS couldn't do that in the regulation, but the but Congress made most of the HIPAA privacy and security rules applicable to these vendors. They also created security breach notification obligations. So if your medical records are subject to a security breach, you get notice. HHS looked at the rules more broadly. They didn't do much to the rest of the rules. I kind of wish they had done a little bit more active work on, they had a chance to revise the rules. And frankly, you said the law was passed in 2009. The rules didn't go into effect until four years later, more than four years later. And so I think it was a little disappointing that they didn't do more with the opportunity that was presented to them. Lessons learned from the HIPAA rules, et cetera. But there wasn't all that much that happened as a result of that um, of, of that law. But again, that's all in effect now. It's all one set of HIPAA privacy and security rules. Um subject to the same entities generally adding in the business associates. Um, and now we're navigating a variety of other changes in the healthcare system that we're trying to figure out how to manage those across uh, uh, both HIPAA and a, and a wide variety of other rules. Because one of the things that's been noticeable in the last few years is how much health information exists in this country that isn't regulated by the HIPAA rules. And that's really generating a lot of the attention today. So now that we've sort of discussed like this package that is HIPAA, both the privacy and security elements and who they pertain to, what does enforcement look like? How is HHS actually ensuring compliance with these obligations? To what extent are covered entities um, maybe liable to the government for, for breaches of data privacy? Sure. So, so enforcement is, is, again, sort of an interesting issue with HHS because, as I said earlier, when they were writing the rules, they wanted to make sure that privacy was protected, but that the healthcare system still worked well. When the rules first went into effect, the government was actually very concerned that if they were too aggressive in their enforcement, that doctors and hospitals would stop sharing information out of nervousness and caution, and that that would actually be bad for both patients and the system. So early on, the government went out of its way to basically say, look, we're not trying to hammer people. We don't want to, you know, we want to help. We want to guide. We want to educate. We want to fix and that's going to be our enforcement approach. So for the first several years of HIPAA, there was no enforcement. Consciously, intentionally, there was no, there was no enforcement. And again, they wanted to make sure that the normal appropriate information flow still happened. So 
Then we get to a point in time where they start slowly but surely to start doing um, uh, to start doing enforcement. I, I you know, made a joke when I first started doing some of this enforcement work where the I said that the Obama administration was going to be more active on enforcement than the Bush administration had been. And a couple years into the Obama administration, I was totally right. The Bush people had done like one case and Obama had done two. So that's more. <laughs> two is more than one. Or um, doubling. Doubling. Yeah, it's a 100 percent increase. But um, so, so I don't think HHS does anything to ensure ensure compliance from all the covered entities. I don't know if there's any rational, reasonable way for them to do that. At the same time, what they generally do now, I think they do reasonable and thoughtful enforcement. They have to know about something. They don't really have any way to just randomly show up and just start asking questions. They don't have resources for that, and I'm not sure that would be appropriate. They learn about situations from a variety of ways. One of the one of the high-tech requirements we talked about a minute ago was this data breach notification. If a company has a data breach uh, a HIPAA-regulated entity has a data breach involving more than 500 people, they have to tell HHS about that. And that means HHS investigates that matter. So that's one source of reporting. They will also, they see reports in the newspaper, they say media exposure, et cetera. So they can do investigations, and they do investigations regularly. I have lots and lots of clients that have been investigated under the, under the HIPAA rules. At the same time, they recognize that most of these rules should not be held to perfection standards, particularly the security rules. You cannot have perfect security. They know that. So when they go in and do enforcement, what they want to learn is what did the company do from the beginning? Did they try reasonably hard to do the right thing? That's part of their analysis. Then when the security breach happens, how did they handle it? Were they prepared? Did they handle it well? Did they do the notice right? Did they mitigate the harm, you know, did they do things to deal with the breach appropriately? And then they want to know, did you learn lessons? And so one of the things I always tell my clients is, look, they are going to knock on your door, but it's going to be three to six months after your breach happens. I want my clients to be in a better place three to six months later than they were when the breach happens. And that being in a better place is not a negative. That's, that's the expectation is you should learn lessons. You should improve. And so HHS's enforcement, again, and you can criticize this. There are reasonable ways to criticize their enforcement, but they have focused their attention on, I'll say sort of, I don't know, three categories. There are um, repeat situations where a company has had the first, second, third, fourth, fifth problem, and at some point they're going to get a penalty. It's not the first time. might not be the second time, but after that, yeah. Or repeated problems that weren't fixed, the same kind of problem that comes up more than one time, and they didn't fix it. So those are the two, those are the two categories that constitutes most of the penalties. There are a handful of situations where they do things like send a message. Um, I use an example. There's, there was a case where a hospital um, filmed a reality TV show in the hospital, and you know, there were newspaper reports that basically an elderly woman was watching the show and sees her husband die on television. It's like, you know, they had his face was blanked out, but she knew and you you can't do that. And HHS went after that hospital, even though it was the first time they had a problem sending a message. Don't do this. Don't don't film these shows in, in, in your hospitals. There's now an aggressive action by HHS on patient access, which is people making requests for the records and hospitals or doctors not giving them. 
HHS is going after those cases, even though they're small dollar cases, because they want to send a message that this is really important. So absolutely, you could criticize saying there should be more enforcement. Um, I'm not personally sure it's a fair criticism. So I think in general, they've done a really good job. They've done a thoughtful job. And as I said, they're not looking to nail people. They're looking to fix and educate and guide and they want to do enforcement against people that really haven't tried or really haven't done a good job. So even thinking about the administrative nexus, and then we also have this, you know, private citizens, do they, are they afforded a private cause of action under HIPAA? No, clearly no. There's no private right of action under HIPAA. Um, there's a particular process for complaints with the entity. There's a process for complaints with the government, et cetera. Um, so there is no private cause of action that's a hot button issue in the national debate that's going on right now, not unique to healthcare, but about a general national privacy law, whether there should be a private cause of action. But HIPAA did not create one. Most of the federal laws that have been passed on privacy do not create a private cause of action. So a consumer can't sue under HIPAA, you know, for violating HIPAA. Now, there are lots of creative theories that people have been trying to use to bring lawsuits based on essentially HIPAA violations. There's been some success, modest success on trying to use HIPAA as essentially a tort standard of care. You know, you, this is the, the standard of care that a hospital should engage in if they do something that didn't meet the HIPAA standards. Maybe I can sue them for some kind of common law tort. That hasn't worked. I mean, again, there's been some success there, but it's not a big deal situation. And it doesn't tend to be it doesn't tend to be a class action situation. Those often work better in an individual situation where a particular person was harmed by a particular, you know, particular bad thing that a, that a hospital or a doctor did. Yeah, shifting gears a little bit and thinking about the present context of the world we live in now, COVID-19 has certainly challenged a lot of administrative thinking, among other things. How has it impacted HIPAA? Have we seen any shifts with HIPAA? Does it apply even? Yeah, so so the short answer, I'll give you a little bit of a longer answer. The short answer is that, that HIPAA is almost never relevant to virtually any COVID question you're going to ask. In particular, when an employer early on in COVID was trying to figure out what they could share about employees who tested positive with other coworkers and stuff, HIPAA was essentially never relevant to that. If your employer now says, you need to represent that you haven't had COVID or you need to report your COVID status or you need to report your vaccine status. There is no HIPAA issue with that anywhere, despite what you read on the internet, despite the fact that there are people screaming it's a HIPAA violation. If somebody asks at a press conference whether a quarterback for any football team is vaccinated and they say, no, I'm not going to tell you that because it's a HIPAA violation, that's just wrong. It's not a HIPAA violation. It has nothing to do with HIPAA. So one of the things COVID has done, which I think is really important, is that it has flagged a big gap in HIPAA. There's lots of health information because of COVID, but essentially none of it is regulated. Again, we can imagine some scenario where it's right, but almost all the things that we've been focusing on, none of it's regulated by HIPAA. And again, that's not inherently a good or bad thing. It's just a fact. It's not part of HIPAA. And so we have all this healthcare data that is, in fact, unregulated by at least the federal laws. And so we have to figure out what to do about that. But it's not, again, it's not a HIPAA issue because of the limited scope of what HIPAA does. 
So, and additionally, we're also kind of living in a moment where HIPAA might change a little bit. We've noticed in the, during the Trump administration that um, HHS issued a notice of proposed rulemaking proposing to amend how coordinated care and other social services might implement for HIPAA disclosures of protected health information. And recently under the Biden administration, we've seen an extension for comments, I believe through March. Uh, what is this proposal seeking to do? What's it seeking to change? Well, there's, there's two major topics of the proposed rulemaking at this point. One has to do with the patient access right that I was, was talking about earlier and making it better and cleaner and easier. And at, I would say it's a series of sort of small fixes to deal with a broader question. And I think there's lots of support for that generally. I don't think that's particularly a partisan issue. Um, I expect a lot of that's going to go into effect eventually. The other stuff is more complicated. And, and again, it's raising some questions because of the limited scope of HIPAA. One of the things that the healthcare system has learned over the last 20 years, when you say it, it shouldn't be surprising, but we've learned that one of the reasons that you might be sick is that you don't have access to good food or you don't have access to good housing. Okay, we, again, we, that, that doesn't seem like, doesn't seem that hard, but we haven't really thought about that in the healthcare system. So one of the questions is with the social service agencies, how is a hospital allowed to share information, for example, with a, with a, a food bank about a patient who doesn't have access to food? Okay, it's a fair question. So it's an appropriate question for the healthcare system. The proposal is basically to make it easier for the hospital to share information with somebody like a food bank. Again, I, I understand that approach. But at the same time, when you think about how HIPAA works, the food bank isn't part of HIPAA. Food bank's not a hospital. The food bank isn't a doctor. The food bank isn't health insurer. And it's not a vendor working for them. And so when you make it easier to share that information with the food bank, you're essentially saying that information is going from being regulated by HIPAA to not being regulated by HIPAA. And so it's not a privacy-neutral calculation. You may decide it's worth it. One alternative is ask the patient if it's okay. You don't need a rule change to ask the patient if it's okay. You could do that today. And so basically that situation is arising in situations where you either don't want to ask the patient or the patient has said no. I'm not sure that's a privacy win. So I think that's a complicated issue is how much more sharing do we want to have? The purpose of those proposed rules is to encourage more sharing of information with more people. If, if, if you're being treated you know, by one doctor for, you, know, you have a cholesterol issue and you also go to a psychiatrist and you have depression and it would help the first doctor to know that you were being treated for depression, do we want to put the burden on you, the patient, to tell your doctor or do we want to make it much easier and really encourage the psychiatrist to share that information with your doctor? Again, there are, there are healthcare system reasons to encourage that sharing, but the easiest way to do that that doesn't impose on privacy rights is to ask the patient. And the rules are, the, the proposals are designed to sort of allow more of that without getting the patient involved. I think that's a much trickier policy question. I'm not sure where that's going to end up. I think it's interesting, too, because in the larger policy context as well, we've seen that as sort of as you've helped us illustrate HIPAA is HIPAA is actually more narrow than I think a lot of people understand it to be. And yes. even in my own understanding of it, it's certainly much more narrow than I anticipated. But thinking about the larger policy debate about privacy generally, uh, what have we seen HIPAA do well? What are its shortcomings? Uh, well, the well, I mean, the well, I think, is that idea of 
normal uses? I mean, one of the big debates in, in privacy law is what's the role that the consumer should play in dictating how businesses can use their information? And right now in most settings outside of the healthcare field, you know, you go to a website today and there's a privacy notice at the bottom of the website page that is perfectly available to you if you want to choose to read it. I don't know that you're going to understand any of it. And I can bet that you didn't read it. And if you go to 50 websites, there's zero chance that you're reading 50 privacy policies. So you have rights as a consumer today, but those rights are sort of meaningless because the privacy policy says we're going to do anything we want to do, anything we're allowed to do by law, and you agree by proceeding with this website, and you don't know that, and you don't have any way to real check on that. HIPAA changed that approach. What HIPAA did is it said, all right, we're not even going to bother with that. I mean, we're going to give you the notice, but we don't care if you read it because we're going to tell the doctors and the hospitals and health insurers, here's a limited set of things that you're allowed to do with this staff. That's it. That's all you're allowed to do. If you want to do something else, then you need to go to the patient and ask their very specific permission. But it's very affirmative permission. It's very specific permission. I think that system works really well in the healthcare system. The question for the broader national debate is, how do we define what's normal and typical and common for not only a hospital, but for a bank and for the Gap and for a technology website and for ESPN and for Target and, you know, whatever. That's really hard. But the concept of defining by context or by commonality or by expectations, that's a really good, I think that's a really good example. I like the HIPAA security rule in general, um, which is designed to be a process security rule. They recognize that if you set out very specific requirements in the rule, you'd have to change those all the time because security technology changes. And so instead what they did is they built in a, um, an approach to how you think about security and a process you have to go through, which the process doesn't change over time. What you're applying it to changes over time, but it's, it's sort of a perfect rule to keep up with these technological changes because it makes you think about every new change as it happens. I think that works really well. HIPAA also has a very, um, very strong approach on what's called de-identification, which is the idea of um, removing identifiers from your medical records so that it's no longer identifiable. You know, it's, it's, it's data about a person, but I don't know that it's Steven or it's Kirk. It's just some person. And there's lots of uses for that data in the healthcare system for research and analytics and, and a variety of other things, public health. Um, and it has a really good approach to that issue. So those are some of the big, um, you know, I think sort of wins, all of which were, were drafted again by HHS just on a blank piece of paper. All of that was was made up. Congress had nothing to do with any of that. Uh, it seems like the work of some clever engineering in the, in the administrative uh, branch to, to take care of that. Curiously, we have seen HIPAA inform a larger policy debate. For instance, California has implemented state statutes regarding medical information and other privacy protections for its residents. Taking this context and thinking more broadly to a potential national law, how has HIPAA helped inform this debate? Boy, that's, that's actually a tough question. And, and to some extent, I'm not sure HIPAA has informed that debate very much. I mean, one of the things that's curious to me about both the state laws so far and the, the major federal bills is that most of them have essentially exempted people covered by HIPAA. They've exempted people covered by any of the major laws. And so that's actually leading to lots of confusion today. You mentioned the California law. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. So the California Consumer Privacy Act 
if you are a California resident today under that law, your medical information is protected by at least six different sets of requirements, depending on who has your data. There is HIPAA. It's exempted from CCPA if you're covered by HIPAA. There's a California medical privacy law. If you're subject to that law, you're not subject to CCPA. If you're part of clinical research, you're not part of CCPA. If you, you know, then, then there's people that are subject to CCPA, but that excludes nonprofits. All, lots of healthcare entities are nonprofits and patient advocacy groups and stuff. And if it's employer-related information, it's not subject to CCPA. So I look at CCPA as an example and say, no, no reasonable California person could understand that. They can't possibly understand that when the doctor has information, it's subject to one rule. When a, a, a mobile app has it, it's subject to a different rule. When a website has it, it's a third rule. If I involve the research, it's a fourth rule. If I give my COVID data to my employer, it's a fifth rule. And if they happens to be a patient advocacy group, that's a sixth deal. That makes no sense to me. At the same time, healthcare businesses are struggling with that. And, and again, we, we can decide not to have sympathy for them, but it makes it harder to do your business. You have to think about who your customers are, who your business partners are, what your data sources are. And it just makes the whole process much more complicated. I've been saying in, in some of my presentations recently that I think that current privacy law, particularly related to healthcare, but not only related to healthcare, is currently bad for consumers and bad for businesses. The only people it's good for right now are privacy lawyers. I'm happy to be one, and I'm not going to complain about that. But you know, we're not a protected class that really should be given a lot of you know additional authority. But right now, it's just too confusing, and so. The federal law right now is continuing that trend. It's going to say we're going to have a baseline federal law, but if you're subject to any of the other laws, you're not part of the federal law. I'm not sure that's the best approach. I, I am increasingly of the view, you know, lots of debate on this. I am increasingly of the view that having a single law, I don't really even care what it says, but having a single law would be better for both consumers and businesses because we'd have a target to shoot at we know what we're doing and we can tailor our activities to that law. And again, maybe bad for privacy lawyers at that point, but we, we wouldn't spend so much time just figuring out how these things all fit together, which I don't think is really a productive use of anyone's time. Again, perhaps other than my time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor Nara, for joining me on the first episode of season three of A Hard Look and sharing your expertise and insight in helping Parson explain HIPAA. Do you have any final comments for our listeners? Uh, a couple things. Make sure you spell HIPAA right. I, uh, I, I tell my students that, uh, you know, if they spell it wrong in the final exam, I will fail you. There's only one P in HIPAA. Um, it is astonishing to me how many people get it wrong. And if you're on the internet, the people that get it wrong are really loud and aggressive about how wrong it is. And so they're, 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 the substance underlying it is also probably wrong. So, um, that's a key one. You're advertising that you don't know what you're talking about when you misspell it. At the same time, do, you know, consumers, individuals should be aware. HIPAA is not a general overall health information privacy rule. It protects certain information when it's held by certain people for certain purposes. And so if you are dealing with a mobile app, if you are, you know, posting your medical condition to your Facebook account or on Twitter or whatever, you need to recognize that that's probably not protected by HIPAA. And it's, it's, it's protected, if at all, by the same rules that apply to, you know, what magazines you bought and whether you bought a pair of jeans last month. So 
that is, you said earlier, Stephen, you said that that's sort of a, a common error. It is a common error. People think it applies where it doesn't. And so think about where it applies. Be protective of your own healthcare information. You probably have to be less worried about that in the core healthcare system. Pay more attention to it outside of the core health. I'll always remember that the P stands for portability, especially after today. Thank you again, Professor Nara. I want to take this time to thank our guest, Professor Nara, the American Bar Association's Administrative Law Section, the Administrative Law Review, and Technology Editor Cooper Bobaturk for all of their help, resources, and platforms to make this podcast a continued presence and contributor to the larger discussions in the world of administrative law. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all on the next episode of A Hard Look.